rest of you can turn with me in your Bibles back to the book of Ephesians, where we'll be picking up where we left off in Ephesians chapter 4. And while you're turning to Ephesians chapter 4, I wanted, you to, I wanted to encourage you to, uh, to sign up, to try for free, to get started, to click here to learn more. Give it a try. Go premium. Claim your free ebook. Download it on the App Store. Get it on Google Play. Claim your free trial. Find out more. Grab it while supplies last. Swipe left to shop the lookbook. Don't forget to like and subscribe. Sign up to receive an exclusive offer and join our mailing list to get a 10% off your next purchase. We are really tired of calls to action from people who just want to sell us things. Our eyes are tired from the glut of click here, swipe left, sign up now. Uh, big business is always calling us to action so that they can get something from us. And frankly, as much as we have to admit we're allured by it, we're also very tired of it. In the passage that we're looking at this morning, we have exactly the opposite. The passage that we'll look at in Ephesians chapter 4 this morning is a call to action, but rather than calling us to action to get something from us, God calls us to action because of what He has already done for us. See, in the first three chapters of Ephesians, we've learned about the wonders that God has done for us in the gospel, and this morning, we begin the second half of the book of Ephesians, the half that shows us the gospel culture that's created by the gospel doctrine in the first half. In verse 1, we see the call to action. This is really the, the fulcrum of the book of Ephesians. Right here, Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writes, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And I want you to see how this sentence acts as a summary of the entire book of Ephesians. Walk is a standard metaphor in the Bible for your daily living. So Paul's really just saying here, live your life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. That's a good summary of everything that we're going to see in chapters 4, 5, and 6. Live your life in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, which is a really good summary of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Worthy has the idea that you're living to match your position in Christ. Live your life in a manner that is consistent with the calling to which you've been called. And the calling to which you've been called is the very thing that Paul has spent three chapters describing in great detail for us. So live your life in a manner that is consistent with what God has done in your life. In other words, Paul could say to the Ephesians, in light of everything that I have said to you about the gospel doctrine of chapters 1 through 3, now live your life accordingly as described in chapters 4, 5, and 6. 
Let me show you another way. It's actually really helpful to, to visualize it. So I want you to just be a super Bible geek with me for a moment. Switch on your flux capacitor, check your kyber crystals, buckle up your TARDIS and put your nerd glasses on. I got a slide for you, okay? And this slide is the entire book of Ephesians. Can you read that? The, the ushers are gonna walk around and pass around binoculars. Um, I'm kidding, you don't need to read it. You can see the headings where you got Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 on the left. Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 on the right. This is all of the text of the entire book of Ephesians. Next slide. Chapter 4, verse 1 is right there, highlighted, and it says, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. Next slide. All of these blue things are highlights of the, the verbs that describe what God has done for us. Does that look kind of lopsided to you? So those are, those are all of the indicatives in the book of Ephesians. Next slide. Here's all of the imperatives. These are all of the commands, the things that we're being told to do. Now you can just visually see the divide in the book of Ephesians, the gospel doctrine on the left, what God has done for us. By the way, that little verb hiding over there, that little imperative right there, that's a command to remember. Remember everything that God has done for you. So even the command over there is a command to remember the gospel doctrines. Uh, the commands over here are the imperatives of what we're called to do in our Christian lives. Next slide. There you go. So you can see over here, we're being told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. And isn't it just amazing to think through, I mean, there's the whole book of Ephesians. Let's close in prayer. We just finished our sermon series. That's the whole thing, right? Walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. All of the gospel doctrine in chapters 1, 2, and 3 informs who we are, which then informs the way that we live a gospel culture in chapters 4, 5, and 6. If you've ever heard people talk about the indicatives and the imperatives, the, the mood of the verbs in the Greek, this is what they're talking about. All of the indicatives in chapters 1, 2, and 3, what God has done for us, motivate all of the imperatives in chapters 4, 5, and 6, what we're being commanded to do. This is the same pattern elsewhere in Scripture, too. This isn't just like fresh out of the book of Ephesians. Wish we could find this somewhere else. This is I mean, the book of Romans, chapters 1 through 11. There's almost no commands. It's all just gospel doctrine. You get to chapter 12, and you've got an Ephesians 4, 1 kind of moment, right? 12, 1, therefore, brethren, I urge you, you, you know this verse. So, Chapter 12 then begins all of the commands in the book of Romans. And Romans is that way, Galatians is that way, Philippians is that way, Colossians is that way, 1 Thessalonians is that way. Uh, even the Ten Commandments, in a sense, follow this pattern. You've got all of the commands of the Ten Commandments, right? But what's the first sentence in that section? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt then the commands, right? Who God is, who you are because of what He's done, now here's how you should live. The indicatives always fuel, motivate, inform the imperatives. Standing here this morning on Ephesians 4.1, as it were, with 1 through 3 behind us and 4 through 6 ahead of us, we just have to see the view of spiritual growth for the Christian that this gives us. It's, it's not enough to simply command humans to obey 
the moral ethics, the moral principles of the Bible. It's not enough to simply command humans to keep moral principles like the ones in chapters 4, 5, and 6 if they've not yet been transformed by the, captivated by the gospel in chapters 1, 2, and 3. So as we think about, think about your interactions with your family members who just don't seem to want to live a consistent Christian moral life. The ones who, the people that you talk to, friends, family members, maybe it's coworkers, our neighbors, as we think about how to transform our culture, we have to remember people don't change morally until they have been changed spiritually. People don't change externally in their behavior until they have been changed internally in their heart. People don't change their lives unless God changes their heart. And he does that by revealing himself in the gospel. If you really want to understand this concept, I'd encourage you to go study 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3 explains how in the Old Testament, Moses pointed people to the commands, but for many of them, their hearts were not changed by God, so they, they couldn't, they wouldn't, they didn't obey the commands that Moses was giving them. And Paul says to the Corinthians, but we as ministers of the new covenant, we point people to the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus, in the gospel, in the pages of scripture. We point people to the glory of God and they are transformed from the inside out. This is why Paul spends three chapters lifting high the glory of God in the gospel in his summary teaching to the Ephesians before he gets to any moral commands about how they ought to live their lives. He wants them to see the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, their Lord, so that they'll be able to say, I count everything else as loss. That's how it happens. You've heard it said, if you want men to build a ship, don't drum up teams to gather wood, divide the work, and give orders. Instead, teach them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. The gospel doctrine of Ephesians 1 through 3 causes our hearts to yearn for the vast and endless sea of God's glory. And then the gospel culture of Ephesians 4 through 6 flows out of that yearning. And since we as Christians are all people who are helping other people grow spiritually, we need to understand and think about how people change. They don't change when you just tell them to do something different. In fact, in most cases, I would guess the person you're talking to already knows what they should and shouldn't do. It's not an information problem. I don't help them just by telling them what the Bible says they have to do differently, moral commands. I need to think about what it is that's in their heart that is, even though they know what the right thing is to do, they're not doing it. Why? Because they need to behold the glory of God in the face of Christ Jesus. They need the light of the gospel, 2 Corinthians 4, 6, to shine into their hearts. So we just have to be careful because it is good to show people what the Bible says we should do. But we have to be careful to not assign people homework, scripture commands, 
without also showing them how the gospel changes their hearts so that they'll actually want to obey the commands. How the character of God motivates us to live differently when we see Him for who He is. So I just encourage you, anytime you're going to, someone's asking you for advice and you're going to give them counsel about what the Bible says they should do, don't just tell them what to do. Also, show them how the glory of God motivates them to do it. Why is it that the character of God, what He's done for us in the gospel, changes the way that we live so that we actually want to keep this command? If I'm discipling someone and they confess, for example, hey, I've I've been looking at pornography. I, I don't help that person by simply telling them, don't you know 1 Corinthians 6.18 says flee sexual immorality? Right? I mean, they already knew that, didn't they? They didn't need me to tell them that. If I want to help them obey that command, I have to show them the extraordinarily devastating gospel doctrine that will crush them and reshape them and make them want to live an Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 kind of life. When the gospel doctrines of chapters 1, 2, and 3 grip us at our core, it creates a gospel culture in our church that is undeniable and unstoppable because we individually begin to walk in step with the gospel. And as we each individually walk differently, live our lives differently, it creates among us a gospel culture that Paul describes for the Ephesians in chapters 4, 5, and 6. And Paul's going to repeat this word, walk. The word walk is a common metaphor in the Bible to describe the entire manner in which you live your life. And it's, it's interesting that the gospel culture created in a church is really the result of individual walks and the way that those walks all come together. He says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. It's not worthy in the sense that you have to walk well enough to earn it. You don't obey the commands to earn the favor of God. No, like the last text message that I received from John Filkey, the imperatives don't earn the indicatives. The indicatives fuel the imperatives. That's exactly the text I got from John this morning. Who you are influences how you live. 18-year-old Chuck has gone through 12 of the toughest weeks of anyone's life in Marine boot camp. During the last week, They are forced to crawl under rolls of serpentine wire with live machine gun ammunition blazing just inches over their head as they crawl through the mud on their faces. About halfway across, Chuck just locks up, freezes. He starts to sweat. He just digs his hands into the mud, and panic begins to sweep over him, and he just freezes. Just then, one of his boot camp buddies crawls up next to him and says, Chuck, get a hold of yourself. You're a Marine. Now act like it. Who he is informs how he does. Who he is, a Marine, should affect how he acts under pressure with courage. And if that's 
true for the Marines because they're not just citizens anymore. He's now a Marine. Because of the change in identity, there ought to be a change in behavior is the expectation. If that's true for Marines who have been changed by boot camp, it's all the more true for Christians who have been changed by the greatest spiritual power in the universe, God himself, the Holy Spirit. So Paul uses the metaphor walk to describe the Christian life. So we have to ask, okay, then what does this walk look like? So over the next three weeks, we'll see eight characteristics of gospel culture in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. And it's another way to say this would be eight characteristics of a worthy walk as we individually walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, it creates a gospel culture among us in our church. So, eight characteristics of gospel culture, and we'll look at the first three this morning here in chapter four. Number one, it's a unified walk. It's a unified walk. You'll see that in verses one through six, and notice that unity doesn't come directly by pursuing unity, but because of the heart change described in verse two. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Now, that's the first way that Paul describes or modifies what he means when he says, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, in the Greek culture, humility and gentleness would have been considered a character flaw, not a virtue. Sounds like today. (laughs) You know why? Because people hate God. But when we see the humility and gentleness of Christ, when we see it in the gospel, when we see it in the character of God, we realize humility is beautiful. Gentleness amazes me. I want to be like that. That was Paul's argument to the Philippians. You remember Philippians chapter 2, a well-known passage. He commands them, consider others as more important than yourself. How does that kind of a humility look? Or what motivates that kind of a humility? He tells them, because that's who Jesus is. That's what Christ did at the cross. When we see it as beautiful, we want to be like this. So Paul says to the Ephesians here, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Now, think with me for a second about this. If Paul has to tell the Ephesians to patiently bear with one another, that means that Paul expects the Ephesians to sin against each other. They're going to do things to each other in their church that will require patience bearing with one another. In other places, Christians are told to forgive one another, right? This all assumes Christians are going to sin against each other in the context of the local church. So you can just imagine if you were a member of Canyon Bible Church of Prescott and there happened to be other Christians as part of that church, you can expect you will be sinned against. It just will happen. If we're part of a local gathering of people who are all sinners, we have to expect that we will be sinned against. We shouldn't be surprised by that. In fact, I'm surprised when I'm not sinning against people. 
But Paul's first expectation for gospel culture that will be created in a church with good gospel doctrine is that there will be unity. Isn't that amazing? Because in humility and gentleness, we will, in spite of our sin against each other, we will patiently bear with one another because the Holy Spirit has unified us spiritually and we are eager to maintain that unity with our lives. Because patiently bearing with is exactly what God has done for us in the gospel. And we can, as Piper says, bend out our justification to one another. God has treated me in such a way that is not consistent with my sin. I am going to do the same for you. I'm not going to treat you according to how you've sinned against me. I'm going to treat you based on the person and work of Jesus Christ on the cross. So, we should expect that we will be sinned against, but let those of us with the deepest wells of doctrine be the quickest to draw the water of grace for other believers. Gospel doctrine creates gospel culture. See that again now as Paul continues with more indicatives. Uh Uh-oh, indicatives in chapter 4 to undergird his imperatives. As he calls the church to build a solid structure of humble unity, he points to the foundation of the building. Verse 3, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Verse 4, there is one body and one Spirit just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Man, that sounds like some incredible spiritual unity. The Holy Spirit has given us unity. We don't generate it. We were just, we're just eager to maintain it. Look at what he's given us. Look at this unity that Christ has created. We're all so different, but he's brought us together And the things that we have in common are so much more important than the things that we differ on. We use the word community a lot. Um, it's, It's like a popular word in our culture even. People want community. The challenge with community is unity. The unity within that community is the challenge of developing real community. Because here's the thing that the world doesn't understand. And here's the thing that many Christians don't realize. If you pursue community, I want that. I want community. I want deep relationships. I want meaningful community. I want lasting friendships with other Christians. Those are all good things to want. If you pursue that primarily and directly, you'll miss it. You'll go off course. Because community is a byproduct. Unity, community, is a byproduct of gospel doctrine creating humble people who have no time to fight with one another because they're too busy fighting alongside one another in the trenches of ministry together. We've got way too, impo- too much important things that we need to accomplish together for us to fight over the fact that you sinned against me. I mean, let's let love overlook a multitude of sins and let's move on because we have a mission to accomplish for the glory of God and we're in the trenches together in this, in ministry. And when you hear me say that, we're in the trenches together in ministry, I know 
there's some of you who are thinking, well, well, wait a second. I mean, ministry is a pastor's job. And that's what, that's what you get paid to do, Jason. You do ministry. You're the one in full-time ministry. We're just saints. We're just Christians. We're not together in ministry. And that's why in the next verses, Paul is going to explain that we're together in ministry. Every Christian is a minister. We're looking at eight characteristics of gospel culture. The first, it's a united walk. Now we'll see in verses 7 through 16, it's a ministry walk. Look at verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Think, with that, think about that slowly for a second. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. This is a statement of fact. Christ gave spiritual gifts to each one of us when we were saved and in our Christian lives. He gives us spiritual gifts. Now Paul quotes Psalm 68, a prophecy in the Old Testament that referred to this. Verse 8, he says, Therefore it says, by it he means the Bible, Psalm 68 says, When he ascended on high, in other words, Jesus went back to heaven, he led a host of captives, all of those who would be saved, and he gave gifts to men. And then, because Paul's ADHD like me, he goes off on a tangent here in verse 9. We're not going to deal with Paul's tangent. He goes off talking about Psalm 68, and then he comes back to his main idea. We're just going to stay on the main idea because you want to finish this sermon series in 2022. So Paul's main point is verse 7. Grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So Paul reminds the Ephesians, when Christ ascended back to heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit gives spiritual gifts to his people to use in ministering to one another, right? Now, don't get caught up in, oh, well, what are my spiritual gifts? I, I need to take some kind of like an online spiritual gift survey to figure out what my spiritual gifts are. Don't get caught up in that. The passages in the New Testament on spiritual gifts are never focused on how to figure out what your spiritual gift is. The focus is always on how the Spirit will use you in other people's lives to help them grow spiritually and how He uses them in your life. The focus is always, hey, we are one, we are united, and yet we are all very different, and we have differing spiritual gifts, and we all need each other's gifts if we're going to grow spiritually. If you want to read more about spiritual gifts, you can just jot down Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, Romans 12 talks about how the, the members of a church, just like the members of a body, don't all have the same function, right? My fingers don't do the same thing that my kidneys do, but it's good to have both kidneys and fingers, right? I need all of the parts of my body, even though they all do different things. That's Romans 12. And Romans 12 describes how we are all members of the church and we have gifts that differ. 1 Corinthians 12 is a familiar passage in which Paul utilizes the body metaphor again. He says, your body has many parts. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. So all of the members of the church are engaged in ministering to one another. 
And Paul is going to explain how that looks practically in the church. Take a look at verse 11. First, he describes the role of the leaders of the church or the elders, the the pastors. And of course, you know the New Testament doesn't make a distinction between pastors and elders, shepherds. They're all the same thing. The the pastors, the elders, the shepherds, the teachers, this, this, this group, this is the pastors of the church. And that's why you could call any one of the guys on staff at our church who is a pastor is also an elder. And our lay elders, though they're not on staff at the church, they're also pastors because the New Testament recognizes those to be one and the same thing. Here in verse 11, Paul even broadens kind of the, the descriptive words that he uses. He says, he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers. So there's the, the elders, as it were, the leadership of the church and what's their role. Verse 12, to equip the saints. So, my job as a pastor, my job as your elder, is to equip you. For what? Verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry. So, it's the saints who are doing the work of the ministry, the building up of the body of Christ. So, the, the picture this, right? We often think about the church and like the whole church growing spiritually. If you think about it like a building being built, we often think about like people coming in and out of the building on Sunday, right? That's Christians coming in, receiving ministry, and then going back home and going to work Monday through Friday. And then on Sunday, we come back and we receive ministry. In actuality, the, a better picture would be the elders have like a tool table, the Tim the tailor, Tim's tool desk set up over here, right? And the elders are all standing behind the desk. I'm like, hang on, okay, you need to do, you need to help somebody. How? Okay, this is here's the, you need a circular saw. Um, oh, you need, okay, here's a here's a hammer. You you need a you need a level. You need a measuring tape. The elders are giving you the tools, and then you as Christians, saints, are going and building the church as you minister to one another. The elders put the tools on your belt to be able to care for one another spiritually, and what is the result of that spiritual care for one another? Look at verse 13. We all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, but by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. So the result is, as the elders equip the saints, and all of you then do the work of ministry in one another's lives, spiritual maturity happens. Spiritual maturity is the developing result in all of our lives. And by the way, pastors, elders, we're just members of the church too. We need the ministry of the body as much as anybody else does. It's not like pastors and elders up here, all of you down here doing the ministry, all you little peons. No, we all need each other. I need your ministry in my spiritual life, in my family, as much as you need mine. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of the body. We all need each other. If you're in a Bible study, like a small group, in our church, or a men's or women's discipleship group, your leader needs your ministry as much as you show up because you need theirs. We all need one another. We all minister to each other. And this is a really good reminder. I mean, 
The idea here is in light of all that God has done in our lives to bring us together in unity as members of Canyon, he's also then given us all differing gifts to benefit one another. This is one of the defining passages in the way that we think about how to do church, right? We, We talk about that as our philosophy of ministry. This is one of the defining passages. As the elders equip the saints, the saints do the work of the ministry in one another's lives by speaking the Bible to each other, and we all grow in maturity together. That's how it works. You can't grow spiritually without all the members of the church. You don't just need sermons from the pulpit and music from the stage. You also need the conversations that happen in the lobby, the time when someone puts their hand on your shoulder and prays for you on aisle six over here because you're struggling this week. We need all of those things. We need all of the differing gifts of the members of Canyon. This is why it's insufficient to try to do church online. There was a time and a place for that, and we didn't like it. There's a reason for that. Because online, you get the guy preaching and the guy with a guitar. And if you only watch the live stream, that's about all you get. And that's like 1% of the membership of our church. You also need to show up and be prayed for by someone in the aisle and pray for a brother or sister in Christ and have a conversation about what you're studying this week. In fact, this is, this is also... One of the reasons our elders often say the most important ministry that happens in our church each week is probably stuff that we don't know anything about, didn't plan, didn't organize for. We didn't build a trellis for the vine to grow. The vine is growing because it's connected to Jesus. We're struggling to keep up with what Jesus is doing. Sometimes the most important ministry that happens in our church is 23 seconds of prayer that take place in the lobby before or after church, or a conversation that happens over text messages between you and the person who's discipling you on Wednesday morning. Sometimes the most important ministry that happens in our church on any given week is not something that one of the pastors or elders is doing. This is also one of the defining characteristics of how we think about all the different ministries. So take children's ministry, for example. We recognize as parents Claire and I don't have everything that our kids need to grow spiritually. I don't have all the spiritual gifts, and neither does my wife. We need help. We need other members of the body because our kids need their spiritual gifts as much as they need our spiritual gifts. And so that's why when we think about children's ministry, we say, you could ask our children's ministry volunteers, I'm putting you all on the spot, Kids of Canyon volunteers, Uh, the first thing we talk about every Sunday morning in our 915 prayer meeting for children's ministry is the vision for Kids of Canyon, and that is Kids of Canyon exists to partner with parents in evangelizing and discipling their kids. Why? Because parents can't do it alone. They're not meant to, right? We all, and this is true of all the ministries of our church, right? Ephesians 4 informs how we think about those things. So, eight characteristics of a gospel culture We're talking about the first three this morning. One, it's a unified walk. Two, it's a ministry walk. And finally for this morning, three, it's a different walk. We'll see that in verses 17 through 21. Look at it with me. Paul says, Now, 
This I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Of course, Gentiles is the picture of unbelievers, those who don't know the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. How do they walk? In the futility of their minds. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardness of their heart. You see the absence of gospel doctrine there, right? Verse 19, they have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity, but that is not the way you learned Christ assuming, which he is, that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus. Now, you'll remember back in our gospel doctrine section in Ephesians chapter 2, right? Paul described what they were like before they were saved. He said, Ephesians 2, you can just flip a page over there and look at it. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. There's that picture again following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now here in chapter 14, he says, I say this and testify in the Lord, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. Paul's point here. That's not who you are anymore. So you walk differently. It's a different walk than the way you used to walk. So he tells them in verse 17, you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. Again, back to the idea that you live out of your identity, Paul is saying that is who you were, were, past tense, Now, God has radically changed your life. You're the opposite of that now. Your walk will be different now. So let's just meditate our way through these verses together for a minute. Paul says, this is who you were, and he describes who they were, but now you're the opposite of that is his point. You must no longer walk that way because that's not who you are anymore. So what is the opposite of each of these sentences? If, if we're going to live differently, let's, let's read each verse together and then just, just meditate on it for a second by rephrasing them in the positive, right? How are we different? So follow along with me, verse 17. This I say and testify in the Lord. You must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. So we could flip that on its head and rephrase it to say, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you no longer walk as the Gentiles do because of the wisdom in your mind. Verse 18, they're darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. We could say, you, you are enlightened in your understanding, welcomed into the life of God because of the knowledge, the gospel doctrine that is in you due to your softness of heart. Verse 19, they have become callous, have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. We could say you have become sensitive and have guarded yourself from sensuality, generous to practice every kind of purity. And we could rephrase verses 20 and 21, say 
This is the way you learned Christ, because you have heard about him, and you were taught in him, and the truth is in Jesus. And I, I love the way Paul brings this back around at the end here, when he's saying, that's how they live as unbelievers. You are different, so you have a different walk. That's not the way you learned to live as a Christian. But instead of saying what we expect, that is not the way you learned to live. That is not the way you learned to walk. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. Paul summarizes all of the moral commands of the Christian life in one word, Christ. That's not the way you learned Christ. That's not the way you learned to live your life, to walk. And what a great reminder that all of our morality as Christians has an aim, and that aim is also the fountain. All of our morality has a goal, and that goal is also the source. All of our morality points to Jesus because all of our morality comes from, flows out of who Jesus is and who we are in him, right? We were dead in our trespasses and sins in which we formerly walked, but because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, bearing the wrath of God in our place, taking our shame and sin, the wrath of God, the punishment for our sin, he bore himself on the cross. And when he died, it is though he took our sin and our punishment for our sin to the grave with him. That's why we say he paid for our sins. And when he rose again to new life, it is as though we too were given new life in Christ. So as we continue to put our faith in him, repenting of our sin, turning away from it, looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, we walk differently because we've been changed. He's transformed our hearts, given us new desires, a new value system, and because of that, we have a different walk than we once did. I want you to know something about me. I am, at least for the next three weeks, the perfect thief. Because for weeks we were working on a flagstone project in my yard, handling flagstone day after day, every evening coming home from work and finagling big heavy flagstones with your fingers has a certain effect on you. And I discovered it when my iPhone and my laptop would no longer unlock. And I'm like, what is wrong with this thing again this time? It's because I have no fingerprints. <laughs> so I open the laptop and it's got the little fingerprint thing there and I push on it and it just goes eh eh. So I tried the thumb because I programmed it that way too. And I'm like eh eh. Laptop doesn't know who I am anymore. Thankfully you can, you know, enter the password anyway. Uh, but it's just funny. We tend to think about our fingerprints as so much of our identity, right? <laughs> and yet, my fingerprints aren't there. I'm the perfect thief for the next three weeks until they grow back. And yet, even without my fingerprints, 
I am still Jason Drum. It hasn't changed who I am. See, fingerprints are just an external characteristic of who we are. It flows from our DNA. Changing the externals by wiping off my fingerprints doesn't change who I really am. Over time, my fingerprints are going to come back because it's who I am on the inside. See, when God changes you, he changes who you are on the inside. And that changes what you do on the outside. We put so much focus on wanting to change what we do on the outside without realizing what we need is for God to change us on the inside. When God changes your spiritual DNA, it changes the way you walk. And as we each walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, it's a unified walk, it's a ministry walk, and it's a different walk. And our gospel doctrine creates among us a gospel culture. Father, that is our greatest desire, that you would receive glory as your gospel transforms our hearts on the inside, and in so doing, transforms all of our behaviors, the ways that we walk through this life, so that people would see this thing that we do together, this Canyon Bible Church of Prescott, it's not about us. It's not even about what we do. It's about you, God, and it's about who you are. And I pray that as the gospel culture in this church continues to develop as we saturate ourselves in gospel doctrine, Lord, that the way we live with one another, the way that we live in this world would make you unavoidable and undeniable for the people who know us because they see your character and your gospel being lived out in our lives. And so we ask in Jesus' name, amen.